This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. This is Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and our guest, Keith Guberman, the CEO of Programmatic Mechanics. Keith, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, Ari and Eric. <laughs> Just a quick reminder to those listening, we did a great interview with Nexon, formerly known as Tremors. That's on Architecture TV. Also, some people may not know this. If you pay for Digiday, you get a special deal on Architecture. We have a joint subscription deal. Reach out to Digiday to have Architecture added to your subscription. Okay, so let's jump in. Uh, so Keith, Pro- Programmatic Mechanics, it's a good name. What is it? Programmatic Mechanics, 10-year-old media company. We called ourselves an independent trading desk in the early years, but I learned how to buy across the DSPs, built some relationships, and then was like, I'm going to go try to do this myself. I raised a seed round of a couple hundred thousand dollars from a guy named Paul, who's my partner. Paul? That's Paul a, you, you just yep. took his name? Took his money? And... uh we started 10 years ago, and I, I basically went out and uh, big managed service business at the time, people using a lot of outsourced programmatic vendors to kind of help them procure this ad space in the programmatic bucket. And I just went out and said, I'm, we're, we're good at this. We're transparent. We'll tell you what we're doing, and we'll drive results. Give me a head-to-head with all these people, and let me prove that there's algorithms and margin and and how much the middleman is taking is a big part of the conversation as well. And I tried to bring that to the forefront, won some clients, won enough clients, built the business, and here we are. So we had uh, MIQ on Architecture TV. I actually just interviewed Digital Remedy. It hasn't been published yet. It's amazing how much value you can add uh, by doing this programmatic work for people because it's still so hard. And getting harder. <laughs> um, thought it was going to get easier there for a while, but I think with privacy, it's about to get more fragmented and complicated. But yeah, I think that once you understand how the dollars flow from the buyer to the publisher, with agencies involved and media companies, there's just a lot of room in there to improve the flow. And that's kind of what we do with different terminology. Besides privacy, what 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 is happening that makes you say it's going to get harder? Well, you guys have, I mean, I've listened to a bunch of the podcasts. You just had Kevil with James on here and everything's an ad network. Like everybody's about to say, yes, I've joined this privacy group and I'm making something available. Yes, I enabled these IDs and you can try to pick off my inventory using these IDs. But if you want my first party data, which is the good stuff and the ads on my network slash app slash CTV channel slash bag of a taxi cab. You got to log into my platform or work through this series of APIs or like access this now with this credentials, the SOC, you know, with also like SOC, that's like the framework every company has to adhere to for like privacy, you know, to fit into like you've checked the privacy box. It's just a lot of logins. There's just going to be a lot of logins. Right. So you have a fragmented buying landscape and fragmented reporting and attribution. 
Yeah, well, yeah. And like the the who's telling me the truth about what's working direct response is going to, I don't want to say not work anymore, but like kind of not work, like have tremendous changes in the way that advertisers consider these like hardcore DR metrics of conversions and uh, lifetime value equations. All those things are about to like work on very small pieces of inventory, but then there'll be gigantic swaths of inventory that don't communicate with that. So it's just going to be after the 10 years I've been doing this, there's now like a couple of buying platforms that are like the premier platforms and everybody uses that to procure a lot of the programmatic space. I just think that that's going to kind of they've gotten it down. They're trying to get the logins down. I, I think they're, it's about to go the other way. So do you think people are in denial about the effect of the Chrome cookie uh, removal and the effect it's going to have? Um. Yes. So are we going to wake up one day on April April 1st, 2024, and people are going to log into their dashboards and there's just going to be nothing there? <laughs> well, I'm exaggerating. But. We, we're going to touch on these like made-for-advertising websites as well. Uh, like, you will get to that. Yeah. But a problem with that is that a lot of people use the click as the metric of results. And like I think that with a lot of these like hardcore DR metrics measuring conversions and post view action and all that, that is going to evaporate more than it has. And I believe that people are building these solutions to try to overcome the fact that the cookies, which track most of the conversion activity, will no longer work. But I don't believe they're aware of how small the inventory will become that does still allow this stuff to work. How do you translate that to your customer? So I'd assume your customer is less sophisticated because they're hiring you to do the work. Uh, you don't want to call your customers unsophisticated, but you know what I mean. Like, how do you translate the in-depth, in-the-weeds knowledge that people like you and I have about cookies to a CMO who might not really have that much context? Well, I will say part of a lot of my activity now has been that we're launching a DSP, like a true DSP in Pontiac. And what I would say is that my customers and all the buyers have gotten smarter. There, there's not as many people, I don't think, looking as much for outsourced firms to do this. And they've kind of all, you know, a lot of the biggest clients and smartest clients and agencies and all these people know more about what programmatic is and do a lot of the lifting themselves. And that's a little bit of why we not only offer the managed service, but have morphed to kind of a self-service a more standard, easy to understand offering because talking to people about this and trying to make sure that they understand the nuances of where a managed service works is difficult. There's not that many people. If the people understand it to that level, as you know, they're like, I'm going to do this myself. So it's this balance of like, listen, we can be a trusted partner. We do it transparently. We're good at it, blah, blah, blah. But over time, I've seen what I would call the writing on the wall to be like, we have to build a self-service option only because our clients are some of the smartest and it's hard to, you know, we got to keep inventing ourselves over time to like give them a way to activate with us to do it. If that yeah. This is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because you and I had lunch a, couple, a month ago and you told me you were building a DSP. And I said to myself, I have two reactions. One is, that's crazy. Why we need another DSP? Like we need a, a hole in our head. Uh, then the other action is it's probably a good business. Like everyone loves a good DSP. Why not? Uh, so, <laughs> so you did YOLO, build a DSP. What, well, what's the deal? There's not many people on that you could put on a call that have also said, you know, I'm going to build a DSP, and you're you're one. Of and them. people thought I was such an idiot for doing that. <laughs> well, yeah. So you know, <laughs> um, okay. So you guys, you know, you guys know how people uh, like raise money and deal with this market. So I built this media business that was managed service. 
And it, you know, transparent, but it was doing, it did well. It made, it, I got traders to run, I ran it very lean, right? I only hired traders when I needed to, trained them out of school. Same with account managers, salespeople are a lot of my friends. <laughs> so we built it over time where like I bootstrapped it, but it did make some money. And, and, and I took that money that it made and I just invested it straight in building a technology team. So first they built like a, you know, very naturally, let's think about a business that does managed service. In the managed service world, you'll have a, you know, an agency that represents 12 dentists in South Carolina and the dentists want to spend $200 in media a month. <laughs> and nobody wants the business. Nobody wants it. It goes from this guy to this guy to this guy. Nobody wants. I would take it. <laughs> I'd say, I love that. Oh, I'll go reach people who need help with their teeth. What is it? Oh, it's two zip codes you service? Great. I would love that business. Like, so my traders are like Keith, like this. I mean, I get it. You like this guy and he's got the connections with the dentist. I'm like, he just onboarded another dentist. And they're like, I know, but uh, it's only, it, it makes us like $17 a month. And they're like, and I, I'm, you know, I get it. It's your business, but as the person running it and the account manager, and they're sitting there being like, what are we doing? They're like, it just doesn't seem financially sane to be doing this. And I was like, you never know when the next dentist is the one that wants to blow it out on the billboards. But regardless, over time, when I had a, my a colleague, a very, very smart, my CTO, Eric Thorson, he joined and it was almost like, I want to join. I like what you're doing. Let's build something. And then we we're like, okay. And he was like, what do you want me to build? And I was like, well, <laughs> I got this problem with the, with, with, uh, you know, this trader who's running the 12 dentists. Can you help them? So he built a tool over the FNexus buying API to help onboard and run a lot of campaigns. And right. I was like, well, that helps. That's good. Then I was like, can you make a UI so that they can control the campaigns themselves? And he was like, sure. It's going to take me a year and a half. And I was like, time we got. <laughs> <laughs> The dentists so, are not in a hurry. A buying platform that works, <laughs> and this is the Pontiac version 1.0. It's like a login; you can use it. You can run campaigns. I shifted all the small business to that. It accepts credit cards via uh, Stripe, and we built this business. And my story is not like I had this great idea. It's like so simple in the way. So then they were like, "Okay, we're done." The App Nexus API we've built against 99 percent of it. And I was like, wow, you got this whole team now. We have an offshore team. We have people in the US. We're a very talented little team. And they were like, what do you want to do next? And I was like, well, we got all these people. We got to do something. I got to pick off something bigger. He's going to ask me again in a week and a half. So I was like, listen, the cookie thing. Okay, so if you build a DSP, and this is a good conversation with you as somebody who's done this many times, cookies make a DSP very complicated. You have to build a battleship. You have to build a tool that can ingest millions of pieces of data a second and to check each one of them versus 200 different lists of things. It's, 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 it's complex. A lot of people think the QPS is the big driver of costs in the DSP and it is, but actually data storage is a bigger cost. Uh, it's more complicated and it's a bigger cost. And it's just complicated, right? So you've confined, I found unbelievable engineering talent, Yeah, but it's like, can you build a tool that can handle 30 million a second? They're like, uh, <laughs> I, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Right. And that always made me nervous because I can't take, I can't run remarketing if I can't get the QPS really high. Right. You got to get the dental intenders to, uh, <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to reach the six clients they want to reach in their remarketing pool. Yeah. Yeah. We need, we need, we need people, we need to retarget, like, hey, have you been to the dentist? It's your yeah. six month checkup. So I'm trying to think, should, is the joke like four out of five dentists prefer programmatic mechanics or is the joke like programmatic mechanics go into competition with gum gum? <laughs> <laughs>
that, and it does seem more appropriate for their business to be in the dental space. Well, uh, they were. They do. They do uh, dental imagery in addition to ad tech. Uh, <laughs> Eric, you were going to jump in here. Yeah. yeah. Two two quick observations. Number one, I wish we had video uh, <laughs> because when Keith was talking about his whole dental journey. I mean, I fell off my chair, quite literally. <laughs> All right, we, 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 we need to reconsider that. Would you invest uh, no, if I said I had a dental DSP? Would, like, would that, <laughs> is that an Imperium investment? <sighs> Not a dental DSP, but also observation number two, like what a cool story about like a, a journey of like b- building a, a cool biz and, and bootstrapping it. And uh, yeah, I, I think the opportunity for a reimagined DSP to serve various verticals and segments is right there. So then that's my question, which is, at least at this point, like, what do you either envision or what are you actually seeing in terms of the SMBs as a customer segment versus sort of like the, the, the larger, what you would consider program, you know, traditional programmatic marketers? Like, are you going in this SMB direction because you think that there's a real market there? So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to answer you with continuing the story, if that's okay, because you, you kind of walked right into it. Um, You're like Joe Pesci. I can't stop you. <laughs> Okay, so we're running the dentist. We've morphed them onto the self-service platform. I then build the self-service platform. Again, it's built on AppNexus's back at this point where they start, I start getting bigger clients. I'll get a guy who does not five dentists, but he does a hundred car dealerships. And all of a sudden he's onboarding dealership and dealership and the revenue goes this way. And all of a sudden my team who thinks I'm insane for the 12 dentists is like, he's not insane. This is brilliant. And what happens is they grow. And they get to six figures a month. And you guys have run businesses before. A big client really makes a big difference. And then he calls me one day and he goes, hey, great news. My spend's so high, I got an app next to seat directly. And I was that, like, oh. that'll happen. Yeah, well, uh, interesting. <laughs> and he's like, so we're going to offboard, but thanks so much. You guys have been great. And I was like, this is tough. And, you know, my, my team is like, we got another dentist. And I'm like, go shove the, <laughs> the ah. <laughs> you're above the dentist yeah, you're missing at this the point. point. Like, I thought the dentist was the point. I'm like, all right. Um, so I realized two problems. One is that I'm losing customers at the high end. And then the other observation, and this is the opposite of the SMB story, but the other observation, because again, I'm running a managed service business that luckily from my talented salespeople, we've got some bigger clients. They're cutting these PG CTV deals, okay? And they're making an agreement with a publisher. And the publisher goes, all right, what do you want? And the client's like, oh, I want all the, your premium package with all the good stuff. And they're like, you want any zip codes? Do you want any audience targeting? How many do you want? Like, what is this? And I was like, the publisher is filtering all of this on their end and they're sending a deal that's going to have very few QPS. This deal is going to have like a thousand QPS and it's going to be for the most valuable inventory on the planet. So that was the other observation is I was like, one, I need something to keep the clients who get bigger around longer. And then the other one was there's going to be an opportunity in CTV to have a much lighter piece of technology to transact giant pieces of business. So then we took our accumulated business and went to the big SSPs and the biggest providers. And we were able to say, hey, we've built a DSP. This took us two more years, by the way. But we built a endpoint that can receive traffic. They're like, what's your max QPS? And we'd be like, 20,000. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, that's fine. We're going to send you a deal of 1,000. And I was like, exactly. This is the opportunity is that you don't need the quote I use around the office that nobody really likes is that they've all built battleships and we've built a speedboat 
and it is now a straight up race. And like, we can just go faster. And I still have the Pontiac 1.0 version that handles small clients, but we now have the Pontiac Enterprise version where I'm talking to very large buyers. And my approach at the moment, while it seems a little nuts, is I will just charge you much less than the other people will charge you for these very simple deals that you're running. Right. Yeah, this is an observation a bunch of people had, which was that the reason these battleships were built was for complicated audience-based targeting in the open web on, you know, millions of QPS. And CTV largely doesn't work that way. Programmatic guarantee deals, DSPs don't do anything besides respond and report. Yes. No. Yes. No. That's it. <laughs> right. So how do you uh, how do you think about your customers? Like, are you only going to be able to onboard customers who only want what you offer? What happens when one of your customers signs up for your low cost, you know, speedboat, and then they say, "Hey, by the way, we want to do you know a banner reach campaign on the open web." So yeah, we build out the DSP, and now we kind of have this idea where it's like, okay, what is the information we get back that's going to be privacy safe across the board? And not my idea, Eric and team's kind of vision here was like, we'll always be able to use zip code. Always, always be able to use zip code. And then we'd all, you know, in an organization, you often read the same book, right? You're all like, hey, I just read this. You should read this. So we'd all read the stories of Jim Simmons who made uh, Renaissance the investment vehicle. Renaissance is like a algorithmic private equity fund or investment bank, but they've built an algorithm that just like makes stock decisions on its own since 1975. And their philosophy was like, we just need to give it more information. Okay. So yes, we need the stock price of everything that moves all the time. That was like 1975. But by 1980, they were like flight patterns, weather data, anything we can get from the commodities market, real estate information, like just kept feeding this algorithm that's now manages trillions of dollars, just feeding it more information. So we kind of had that philosophy where we should make a platform that brings in everything we can learn about zip codes and gives that to the buyer to use. So now we have what we think is a competitive cookie list product called the Pontiac Art or Audience Research Tool. And that plugs into the DSP for the CTV. But if I expand past CTV into pre-roll, which we're doing, and then probably into display and retail things. And we could talk about that if you want. But as we expand, I'm accepting that we're going to have to build parity to the other DSPs, but I'm not not doing cookies. I, I just don't think, I don't think I'm ever going to replace a DSP that manages cookies or those decisions, or at least in the next 10 years, I'm not going to replace them. So I'm focused only on this like audience cookie-less opportunity right. type style. Eric, you may remember the zip code conversation you and I had where I pitched you the exact same idea two years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a good idea. It's a good idea. So what uh, devil's advocate on the zip code thing, uh, because I've heard these objections, is uh, frequency cap, number one. Number two is um, unreliability of IP addresses and uh, as they map to zip codes. Those would be kind of the two big ones. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Those are great ones. The frequency cap one leads you right into the conversation with how much do you understand this privacy thing is going to blow things up. It's like, listen, if you're buying CTV and all you get back is some type of device ID that was declared for the 10 minutes you bought this ad versus a display ad on an Apple computer, there is no way, maybe through UID, maybe through some very convoluted methods, you could tie these, but it's going to be a very small percentage of what's available. Okay, I'm not saying that you can't do frequency capping and analysis for the 10% that still holds identifiers or the 15% that's stitched together via some companies. 
but 70% of the inventory is not going to allow you to do that. So you have to accept what you can understand. We set up six deals for you with PG people. They're all capping it on their end. We've set up this for the more open CTV where we can see identifiers so that it's capped. We could do the same for other things, maybe using IP address, but IP address is not all that accurate all the time. So it's much of this. You're going to have to accept that there's no one service serves all frequency cap, no matter where you think the internal teams have built it. And we can only do the best we can in each you know, specific facet. And here's what we do for that. That's exactly what I've been saying since the Chrome announcement three years ago. Everyone's like, what will replace the IDs? And I'm like, well, maybe nothing. You know, maybe Not it'll just be harder. I mean, I we think you have options. I think of it as tranches. Some area, yeah. you will still be able to do what you do today. I don't know how big that is. Maybe it's 10%. Of a trillion-dollar market, 10% isn't marbles. <laughs> it's still a lot of money. 10% of these stitched IDs, this conversation, again, trillion-dollar market, plenty of money. But the majority is going to have no identifier, yeah. and you have to figure out a way to do it smartly. Let's talk quickly about retail media, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, so um, Kevil, who we mentioned previously and who's on the show last week, um, they uh, they have recently proposed a extension to OpenRTB that would allow for product listing ads, uh, which would be a way to bring the silos a little bit more liquidity. I don't know if you have an opinion about this, or Eric, if you have an opinion about this. Do you do you think that that sort of thing, product listing ads, is something that DSPs are going to participate in? A hundred percent. I mean, there's, there's, you know, for us that have been in this for a while, <laughs> programmatic is a way for publishers to sell the remnant inventory they can't sell. Like there's really, it's really about monetizing something that in their mind is undervalued at the moment, something that's not getting bought enough. And then the other side you have, especially when you get into shopper and retail marketing with this whole revolution, is that it's not an accident that these major companies are on the major spots in these stores' shelves. And one of the ways that these companies over the table buy their space is injecting money via the advertising channels now. These are the basis of the relationship. A lot of the retail media on the big level is dealt with just like upfronts, commits. Hey, I'm going to spend a billion dollars on your thing. Make sure I get that end cap with my sponge. And they're like, no doubt. You got it. So then the people buying it are just trying to make sure that the money goes through correctly. So I believe that because of the natural need for the commits to get spent and for the publishers to need to monetize more of it, because they always do, that will lead to more programmaticness of how this is done. But then again, with privacy and with this like we own the data revolution, they're all going to want to control everything on their end. Right, right. Um, Eric, you know, you think a lot about retail media. Do you think programmatic is coming or interoperability is coming to retail media? A little it bit of silo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it has to, right? For this thing to truly scale and become, you know, uh, what we all think it can be in terms of the non-Amazon segment of the of, of the space, um, it has to. So, yeah, Kevl's a portfolio company. And um, you know, we think this idea of, like, adding liquidity to it is, like, just awesome. And uh, I think Keith probably said it better than me in terms of the <laughs> Right. All right. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with the news of the week. All right. 
We're back. So we're recording this on Wednesday morning, which is earlier than we usually record. Um, so we may miss some news. I think there is going to be some news this week, is my uh, my spidey sense. So we're, we're a little bit backed up. So uh, the first item was announced probably right after we recorded last week, which was more on the Media Math saga. So our friend Lara O'Reilly, who was on the show about three weeks ago, she put out her latest article that Joe Zawatsky and a team from Aperium Ventures uh hem <laughs> was uh was preparing to raise 10 million dollars to make a bid for bankrupt media math so eric is recused he's not allowed to speak he is uh on mute uh, so i guess keith uh what do you think would eric make a good ceo of media math well you know uh eric's storied accomplishments in this business are you know amazing um <laughs> but what's funny is that i'm building a dsp yeah. You've built a DSP. Yep. And this guy might be trying to buy a DSP. <laughs> I think if, if I had $10 million, I'd just build one. I wouldn't try to re-buy re this thing. I mean, I think there's two questions that immediately come up, which is like $10 million, Is that really enough for the cash flow needs and, and of this DSP? And the second related question is, are the suppliers going to turn them back on uh, without getting paid the money they're owed? Both good questions. I mean, listen... <laughs> It's a funny room here of DSP conversations, but you can't just come, you know, from a random place and show up and say, I'm going to build a DSP. The publishers are like, who are you? I'm extending you no credit. Yep. Who are the clients that are going to trust you? You know, you're right. There's a lot of DSPs out there. But if you try to do all these integrations, it's not like they're like, hey, get on in here. They're sure. first. All of them are like, who are you and why <laughs> for a while? And, you know, there's definitely something that like, if you could buy an established product that's plugged into the major exchanges that doesn't carry a debt load and can, again, if I'm right, and there's a, a thousand logins tomorrow, what's another login? So like, I don't know, I, I, as somebody building a DSP, I definitely don't think it's crazy. I think that it obviously a lot of the devil's in the details, but on its face, if you told me that that company, which has moved billions and billions of media dollars has got value in those assets for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like, I, I, I would, Yeah. Kind of like, I think, like that seems low, but <laughs> seems a little low. I think part of it is that media math had a lot of companies that had built on their APIs uh, and had built on or built on their data feeds and things like that. And that's hard to switch. And a lot of those companies were left high and dry by the bankruptcy. So uh, maybe the part of the theory here, and once again, we aren't asking Eric, uh, part of the theory here is that, uh, you know, there's a there's a bunch of customers who would just turn it back on if it existed. But, you know, how is the conversation with Magnite going to go when they got stiffed on $8 million? Sure, it's a new new balance sheet, but like, and I, it's I don't know. <laughs> it's Joe on the phone, you know? Yeah, we're like, that wasn't Joe. me. What do you comment on this? We're, we're restarting this whole thing. And like, this, the agency cycle, how people spend money, again, if 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 there's if the wind's blowing our way and they're like, hey, these six platforms I use today are not getting going to get the job done anymore, then I would think that the original team who has unbelievably large number of relationships and, again, could rebuild the strategic profile of how to go to market and make money, you know, you get the sequential liability going. Hey, once he pays me, I'll pay you. You get those conversations over the top. I would think you could make it work. I would think you could. 
I would all right. Well, we will. This will not be the last time we talk about this subject. Uh, all right. It was a little bit of a slow news week, but there were two articles published in Trade Press this week that were some of the most batshit crazy things I've seen in ad tech. So we're going to do some some dramatic readings here. So <laughs> the first was uh, my friends at Cognitive. So Cognitive is another DSP. Um, uh, Cognitive is a DSP run by Jeremy Fain. He's a friend of mine, former beeswax client. I gave him a little bit of too much of a hard time on Twitter. If you're listening, I apologize, but we're still going to make fun of you. So Cognitive published a study. I don't really care what the study was. The study was basically saying that bid shading is a bad because people don't know how it works and maybe they're not getting the optimal prices. Fine, whatever. Um, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But the funny part is Dotas, the uh, publication, wrote an article about it. I think it's probably a paid article. And they just pulled out the thesaurus and went bonkers. <laughs> so first of all, the uh, the... <laughs> The article, I recommend reading it. The article calls Cognitive a juggernaut, which, you know, I just looked on LinkedIn and they have 80 employees. So uh, maybe uh, that's more than I thought they had, but still a juggernaut, mm, maybe not. Okay, I'm going to read this a paragraph that I found here and I'll, I'll try to try to get the uh, feeling across on the podcast. In an industry plagued by labyrinthian supply chains and pervasive waste, this report brings to light the necessity for advertisers to assertively pressure agencies and antech partners to remain vigilant in cost management. Bid shading proffered as a solution to counteract publisher-flavored tilt of first-price auctions is unveiled as a convoluted enigma that leaves media buyers baffled and bewildered. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to turn my camera off. <laughs> oh, right. my God. Wow. I mean, did AI write this? It might yes. just be AI that wrote yes, this. Yes, yes. So my theory, and uh, Pesach uh, uh, ho hopefully will we'll chime in uh, on the internet, is that, yeah, they ran this through ChatGPT, said to uh, put it in the voice of the introduction to Star Wars or some sort of... <laughs> Epic, <laughs> epic film, and uh, you know, r ran it through once, once or twice more, saying increase the drama, increase the drama, <laughs> more drama. Chat GPT, we need to, Plus we need to drama. earn our 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 placement fee here. Plus drama. Um, does anyone actually want to talk about bitch hating, or is that just not nearly as interesting as the article? Well, bitch hating in general is kind of a. Uh... You know, especially when you build, so you build the DSP, it sees traffic coming in. It sees all the opportunities to place ads. You can learn a lot, right? You can figure out a lot of stuff. I don't think that it's, you know, you guys understand yield and the publisher's plight to make more money. I, I think that it's just kind of the call and response to that stuff. I don't think it's as complicated or as dramatic as they made it. Yeah, they made it pretty dramatic. They made it pretty uh, dramatic. So, yeah. so basically, the problem is that most algorithms in ad tech were built for second price auctions, which means what they do, the algorithm does, is predict what the impression will be worth to an advertiser, and that's great if you're running a second price auction. But as soon as you're running a first price auction, the what it's actually worth to you is overpaying quite a bit because what you really want to pay is the, a penny more than the minimum price you can get it at. Um, so bid shading is sort of this giant band-aid put on first price auctions 
it happens. And uh, we did it at Beeswax. We charge for it. That was the other thing is uh, part of the argument against bid shading is that companies like the Trade Desk, they tr- charge a percentage of what you save using their bid shading algorithm. And the argument is like, well, I thought that's what your algorithm was for, was getting me the best price. Why are you charging me more to get a better price? And I get it. Well, we did it too at Beeswax. So shit happens. Well, uh, also, oh, man. It plays, listen, you know, there's a little bit of this story of like, why is programmatic so complicated? meets this like is it overbuilt at this point type of conversation which like let's be real like it is complicated but there's also an enormous amount of business that's trying to work their way in and justify the need for this and this and like again i would think that bid shading is very complicated kind of you know again the more complicated the more you can kind of bury fees and money it's Again, it, it might. I don't want to say it's reaching an end with the cookie thing, but again, they might be getting a little bit nervous that there's going to be all so many changes that we got to come out with as many ways we could charge people as possible. Because yeah, I I think one of the if you think about it, the reason why you're bidding differently on every impression in an auction is because you have data that's different on every impression. And if cookies were to totally go away, there would be no identity. A lot of the impressions would all look alike, and you wouldn't be able to really value them very well. All right, let's go on to the second batshit article. Only one quick second on that. Yeah, go ahead. Cybids acquisition. Do you think yes. that those guys looked and said, man, we're not getting much signal back on what's working for the machine learning algorithm. There's less data because the cookies are going away. Oh, you know what's not going to work when the cookies go away? A machine learning AI algorithm. And we should maybe unload this thing now. I don't know. I don't know the guys, but like. Uh, I don't know. They got a good price. I mean. Oh, I, 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 don't get me wrong. Amazing. But I'm just saying that it's. You know, you've been an entrepreneur. You think you could go to the moon. They got, they might have seen things that made them nervous and said, we should unload this now. Yeah, it's one way to look at it. I, I think the other thing is that there's both a lot of demand for custom algorithms. We saw that at Beeswax, but there are also independent companies like Chalice, Cybids. There's a lot of demand for that, but no one has ever scaled it to be a big business. There's never been a $100 million revenue company that does custom algorithms. So at some point, you have to sell. That's kind of oh, the bottom true, line. True, Okay. Second batshit crazy article of the week. This isn't this isn't so much about the writing. This is about the actual argument, content. Uh, <laughs> the content. So uh, sites ma- are made for advertising sites. These are sites that are garbage, that are filled with ads and slideshows and video players. And until I read this article, I thought we all agreed this was a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> but then Digiday comes out with effectively a both sides article about MFA ads by Seb Josephs and Kelly Barber. I want to give them credit for their point of view. And this article basically says, yeah, they stink, but kind of they give us reach. And, you know, we register conversions. So really, are they that bad? So I will once again do a little bit of a dramatic reading here. Uh <laughs> Imagine a web page drowning in towering banner ads and strategically placed video players transforming browsing into a chaotic commercial nightmare. Yes, okay, I imagine that. Um, to a critical observer, this mishmash of intrusive ads and dubious content might seem like a digital apocalypse. Okay, I'm with you so far. However, the next word is however. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, Lurking in the background, the algorithm responsible for ad placements consider these sites to be prime opportunities. They straddle the line between authenticity and potentially invalid traffic, and that leaves just enough wiggle room for marketers to do the mental contortions necessary to swallow this bitter pill. Wow. Uh, I don't even know what to say, man. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, we've been doing this a while, right? Like uh, bot traffic ain't new. Like the idea that computers register websites is not new, but I've never seen an article defending the other side. <laughs> it's, that is just, it's just too ridiculous. It's so good. It's so good. It seemed to be a intellectual exercise almost, you know, like a you know, college professor saying, give me the argument for, give me the argument against versus I think Seb or, or, or the other author or like the person from Share Through who was quoted endorsing this stuff. I, I don't think there is a person in this space besides the people that actually throw these MFA sites on, on exchanges so, somehow and get them through that would um, think these are in any way acceptable. Right. It's 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 the dirty laundry. And it's the, I guess they're just showing the dirty laundry. Is that is that the the uh, charitable argument about this article that it's like it's there. People buy it. It gives them reach and it games the attribution systems. So it's not as bad as we think. They're just trying to explain why these things continue to, you know, get optimized towards. But again, there is no argument for MFA sites. Just no full stop. The, there is an explanation about why they continue to exist, uh, so. and the explanation is a mixture of laziness and lack of accountability at agencies and lack of transparency in reporting. Those are all true things that cause them, but we should all agree that they're bad and need to go away. I think – I thought so before I read the article. If you put the whole thing together and look at it from like top to bottom, it is like rich with irony. It's like, okay, so so websites see the fact that they need to make splashier, crazier headlines to drive more traffic, okay? So right. they can drive more traffic, and the, and the fraudsters start to realize that, like, real publications and made-for-advertising websites are, like, getting close to each other. Like, we'll just source pretend content about something, drive traffic to it, right, and get advertisers to buy ads. So it's just like, how do we get the eyeballs and what do eyeballs look like saga that publishers deal with to the point where somebody said to one of the reputable publications, I need an article that says there's another side. And it's like, all right, that could get some traffic. And, th and it's like this whole game of like, well, this got a lot of attention and it is quite ridiculous, but it does show the other side. And it probably got a lot of action. So I think that little state of the media world as well, which also, by the way, plays into this made for advertising websites thing. It's all very meta that uh, th yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. a trolling article about about this got a lot of attention. Um, <laughs> let's do a quick wrap up on our latest news around our favorite website, x.com. Uh, so, Eric, what's your thinking on the fight? It doesn't seem like it's happening. The Zuck fight. Yeah, th thankfully it's not happening. Um, I say thankfully because again, I, I maintain that Zuck would defeat Elon in a matter of seconds, and Elon could get potentially injured. So, uh, so yes. I think it's I think it's good. What seemed to happen was, and again, I'm, I've been kind of away for a couple of weeks. Elon was like changing location, saying he had an injury, and Zuck <laughs> is just like like. Like Sylvester Stallone in, in Rocky Four, in his background, just training and chopping wood and like wrestling bears, and you know he's 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 had enough. Yeah, um, yeah, and and luckily Elon won't be injured, so we could still have a future of our colonies on Mars. And then the other is X News, which was really obnoxious, came out yesterday, which was it appears uh, that X is in 
intentionally putting delays on the redirects to websites that Elon doesn't like. Um, so if you click on an article to the New York Times off of a uh, tweet, it's slow. It takes a while to resolve to the New York Times. Do the same thing with the Wall Street Journal right away. And it's the same thing with threads, and it's the same thing with Reddit. And anyone who's gotten on his bad side is being punished with latency. This is just despicable. It's just despicable. I don't know what else to say. It, assuming it's true. I mean, it could be the latency is for some other reason. It's just a coincidence that's all the sites he doesn't like that are slow. But it really does appear to be a pattern. And this just breaks the internet. It is vindictive. It goes against free speech. It's just terrible. I, I can't understand. Again, he is in a level of raising money and having conversations with very, very deep pockets where I don't understand why. But it looks like he's trying to take it all down. I don't know why. I couldn't tell you why. Like, it doesn't make any sense financially. But he seems to make decisions repeatedly that are going to, like, I would think slowly, you know, shed off the valuable pieces of the service and business over time. But I, I don't know. I'm not. Really Certainly happy. seems that way. Yeah. One piece of data. I, I did a quick Google. Um, so according to Neiman Lab, which um, I believe is is reputable. Yeah, uh, they're very reputable. Yeah, the, the the traffic to news organizations. Um, what do you think it is from from Twitter uh, as of at least early this year? It's very low. I know. I, I've seen. I don't know the numbers, but the stats are that far more comes from Google News and and Meta than from Twitter. What do you think the percentage is, Keith? That comes from Twitter now, or what, when was it? Earlier this year. I mean, I would think for a for a news site somewhere between five and ten. I would think. All right. I'd say lower. Two yeah. Or three. Court. Again, according to Neiman Lab, one point five percent. Yeah, it's yeah, an so influence. It's, it's not. Platform. It's irrelevant. It's, ir it's irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. It's it's of that one point five percent. Like, what's the what's the value of the Twitter user? Which you know, I would I would imagine is um is significant. Well, this podcast is a good example. We're we're an independent media company, and probably half of the things we talk about uh, we learned about on Twitter. So you know, an article trends on Twitter. I read it. You read it. Yep. Shows up in our notes, and we talk about it, and it gets exposed to another, you know, ten thousand people or whoever listen to this podcast. Uh, so it's really important, but not directly. Yeah, that's really well said. All right, so this was an awesome conversation. Uh, this was one of the funniest episodes I think we've ever had. <laughs> Keith, thanks for keeping it light. Good luck with the DSP. Pontiac is a cool name, uh, and I, I think we'll hear a lot more about it in the future. Thank you so much both for having me, uh, big fan, and just thanks so much. I loved sharing the stage with you for a minute here. Thanks. Eric, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. This is awesome. Thank you, Keith. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening. New interviews are added every week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.